The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste. This is the Irish Times Books Podcast with me, Martin Doyle. On this podcast, I talk to arts journalist Sinead Gleeson about her acclaimed collection of personal essays, Constellations. And later, Laura Slattery talks to Sarah Davis Goff about Tramp Press, the highly successful small publisher she co-founded, and her own first novel, Last Ones Left Alive, a dystopian novel set in the west of Ireland in the near future. Sinead Gleeson is well known in Ireland as an arts journalist, having presented the book show on RTE and interviewed many big names at various literary festivals. More recently, she has edited two influential anthologies of short stories by Irish women writers, The Long Gaze Back and The Glass Shore. Now she makes her debut as an author in her own right with Constellations, a collection of essays about the female body, her personal experiences and her reading of the works of other female artists. Here's Sinead reading a passage from A Wound Gives Off Its Own Light, which explores the intersection of illness and creativity in the works of Frida Kahlo, Lucy Greeley, Joe Spence, among others. After the bus crash in 1925, doctors placed Frida Kahlo in a full body cast to help her bones heal. It fulfilled its medical purpose, but was, to Frida, a prison. Bored and confined, she began to paint. Unable to sit, her mother bought her a special easel and later a mirror was positioned above her bed so that she could paint herself. A medical cast is one way of obscuring the body. Kahlo tried to capture the self that was hidden beneath. For the months that I was sealed into a hip spike of plaster, I thought of it as a tomb. But Frida saw the possibility in her cast. All that was done to Kahlo's body is revealed in her work. She decorated the plaster and painted an ornate dragon on her red prosthetic leg which was also the closest she ever came to using her physical self as a canvas. The word stillness also contains illness. My bed-bound years formed in me a constant reader. Books made being indoors and unable to move more bearable. In the months after her accident, Kahlo took refuge in painting. But what if there had been no collision? If Frida had been somewhere else on the day of the crash, would she still have become a painter? Her plan, before discovering art, was to become a doctor. Immobility is gasoline for the imagination. In convalescence, the mind craves open spaces, dark alleys, moon landings. Her paintings are a lesson in corporeal panic, body in peril, a way of communicating pain to those unversed in it. Illness and art may be subjective, but when I first encountered Carlo's paintings, they represented exactly what I felt in a way my teenage self could not describe. In all her years of painting the problem of her body, her brokenness, her infertility, Kahlo never painted in detail the scene of the accident, never the carnage, the ripping apart of bus and bones. She only drew the aftermath once in one lithographic sketch called The Accident. Rivera and Kahlo collected Mexican ex-photos, small paintings offered to saints as thanks for surviving illness, injury or death. Frida painted over one that contained a bus crash scene, altering the destination to Coyoacan and the face of the prone victim to her own, unibrow included. In her painting The Bus from 1929, she depicts herself alongside her fellow passengers just before the accident. It captures the moment before her life changed forever, the moment before her near death, 
the last moments of her life that would be pain-free. When I look at her work, I am struck by the way the language of the body, with all its heat and movement, is still at odds with the medical words of science. For Frida, no words were enough. They were too slight or too generic. In illness, it is hard to find the right words. Joe Shapcott's 2010 poetry collection of mutability was written after a diagnosis of breast cancer, but the word cancer never appears in its pages and the book is dedicated to Shapcott's medical team. Words can fail us, and they failed Frida. They could not harness what she wanted to say. For her, art, not language, was the medium of her agony. Launching Sinead Gleeson's collection of essays, Constellations, Anne Enright said it is written from the inside, but it is not just a book about sensations or emotions. Those precursors are heralds of our sense of self. Indeed, Gleeson is wary of the ego. Constellations is not about me or how I felt. It is, like its author, constantly curious. The book looks outwards to the scientific, historical and philosophical contexts, to the works of artists like Frida Kahlo and writers like Lucy Greeley, who are precise and expansive about physical experience. It also makes art in the poems it contains as a way of bridging impossibility, of leaping over the body silence. Here, I talk to Sinead about her work. Hi, Sinead. Um, Hi, welcome to the Irish Times um, Books Podcast. Thanks for having um, me. Great to have you. Um, I'm just remembering having a flashback now. I think we did the Book Club Podcast uh, maybe two years ago for the longest back. We did, the in, the Irish, in the Irish Writers' Centre. Yes, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, evidence, I guess, if anywhere needed, that you're uh, a prolific uh, talent in the Irish books world. Um, how long in the planning was Constellations then? Does it date back even before your two anthologies of Irish women writers? I'd say in terms of my own wanting to write and thinking about writing, it certainly does. But in terms of the application, I, I would say no, um, because I had always assumed when I was going to write that I would be writing fiction, that I would write a novel, which is something I'm trying to, to do now. But I, I I knew for a long time that I wanted to write about my experiences of being ill when I was younger and write about uh, various things that have happened in my life that I think are kind of uh, what I would think of as sort of ruptures or sort of bad moments or catastrophic or turning points. Not all of them are necessarily bad. Um, and to write them down, I think sometimes you need a lot of distance from those places to, to be able to capture them properly. Um, and I didn't think that they would work as short stories. I, I always knew that I was going to probably write them as fiction or as, as nonfiction. But to me, and I was asked a long time ago to write a memoir and I wasn't interested in writing memoir because to me, I think memoir is all inclusive. Uh, nothing's left out. It starts at the start, it ends at the ends and has a very uh, specific trajectory. It's very chronological. Um, it's very all in. And I wasn't interested in telling a story that way. And, you know, I teach creative writing students and I talk to them all the time about form and whether that's novels or, you know, hybrid prose poems or whatever it is. It is all just storytelling. And for me, what felt like the most authentic uh, and interesting way for me as a writer to present those stories were, were as essays. So I started to write them one by one. This is also the form of the essay. It's handy in that you don't have to write 400 pages, mm -hmm, unlike mm -hmm. a novel. So I started to sort of pick out the subjects that I thought might be interesting to me. And the Lourdes one 
came quite quickly, but was in a very different form to this. And I know even then that I was resisting putting the self into it. Um, Siobhan Mannion, who has always been brilliant as a first reader, saw the first version of that and said there was a lot more religion and dogma in it. And she said, the story that needs to be told, the one that nobody knows in that essay, is the story of you and what happened to you. So stop hiding behind those structural pillars and Mm -hmm. put yourself more in the centre of it. So... Once I got that essay, and obviously it was published by Granta and, and, I was, and it was published by yourself, um, and there was an, a, a huge response to it. And I, I think other writers who, who have told me as well that when you start to write about certain subjects, people start to respond to them and want to tell, they feel either that they want to tell you their stories or they have permission to tell their own stories. Um, and so the book was built sort of brick by brick, essay by essay over maybe a three or four year, year period. Um, and again, when I got stuck on one essay, I could then jump off sure. to a different area. So and, and and they feed into each other and they talk to each other in that way. And that's so it's a they are all very distinct, but they're certainly, in my mind, a collection. And did you have from the very beginning the idea that you would be looking for the work of other writers, artists, creative people to kind of whose experiences maybe chimed with yours, like, say, Frida Kahlo that you mentioned in, in the piece just gone. And Lucy Greeley, I think, also appears in that chapter. For sure, yeah. Um, I wasn't interested in writing a book that was just about my, myself. Um, I know my own story and there's so many more interesting things. I, I'm I'm interested in writing and I'm interested in writing about the body uh, and lots of the issues uh, of health that are in this book. But I have a lot of interests and lots of that comes from being a journalist for years. I always wrote about the arts. I was always interested in visual art or music. Uh, or film or, or, you know, poetry, painting, all of those things. So it didn't make any sense to me to make it a book just about myself. And the essay as a form, which I, I frequently say, is is not something that's inward looking. It should be asking questions. It's an act of interrogation. It should be looking outwards at the world. Um, so I wanted to find subjects that I was interested in so that, because some of the essays in the book as well are very, I'm, I'm in very little of them. So there's a book about the adventure narrative, which is about female adventurers and the gendered nature of, of travel and permission and class and who gets to go and travel the world. And I talk about a lot of women and, and not very much about myself because um I, I just didn't want to write a whole book about myself. And again, this is a way for me to sort of cheat. I get to tell one story of my own, but I also get to talk about the the, the stories of people who've really interested me. Carlo's been a real touchstone and the, the essay that you uh, will be ex- extracting is, uh, Lucy Greeley was the same. There are sort of people that I found at times when I really needed them, people who had used their own experiences of, of either loss or physical loss or, or you know, bodily disruption to, to turn it into something good. They kind of literally turned pain into mm-hmm. something um, positive, into a life's work, to be honest. Tell me a little bit about Lucy Greeley because she's not in that, that extract that you read, but she is in the yeah. essay that we are publishing um, in the Irish Times. Lucy Greeley is, is one of those, and as you've probably heard me say many times, Martin, I'm interested in forgotten Irish women writers. Uh, Lucy Greeley is one that's more recent in many ways because she, she only died uh, in the 1990s. Uh, she was born in Ireland and uh, moved with her family, very much echoing the life of Maeve Brennan in a way, moved with her family to America, um, became very uh, fated very young when she was only in college. She was writing essays and writing poetry. Uh, apparently was just, you know, held court. People adored her and loved her. But what did happen to her again was similar to me, but her experience was a lot worse, I think. Uh, It was a childhood diagnosis of cancer in her face, which resulted in multiple surgeries, 30 odd, same amount as Carlo, actually. um, And a lot of pain, a lot of physical discomfort. um, And the fact, I think, that it was in her face and her her wonderful novelistic memoir is called Autobiography of a Face, which deals with not just being ill and isolated, which I talk about in this book, the isolation and kind of hinterland of illness. But in Greeley's case, your face is a very physical thing. 
thing. So everybody notices it straight away. And it's basically her dealing with, you know, not being beautiful, being instantly marked as being a sick person because people can see it on, on her face. And I think she wrote a lot of wonderful poems, a lot of wonderful um, short stories. I was hoping there was fiction. I went looking when I was putting the long gaze back together in case there was a rare or, you know, much lost short story, but there yeah. wasn't. But mm-hmm. she's, she became, again, those figures were, when you find people saying the things that I wasn't able to say when I was young or I didn't have the language to talk about my own experiences. And I think Carlo Greeley and the photographer Joe Spencer, people who mm-hmm. were, were, were doing very different things in all of their work, but all representing the female body in illness. You've been a great champion of excavating and establishing um, a tradition of the Irish short story written by women. I just wonder, um, mentioning Lucy Greeley reminds me that you you also uh, mentioned Leah Mills and, and her work on a very similar theme. I was going to say, maybe talk a little bit about Leah's work, but also maybe is there an Irish essay tradition um, by female writers in the same way that you have established or, or promoted that um, in the short in short fiction? I, I think Leah Mills is uh, a, a hugely talented Irish writer. And again, I remember finding that book. And I, I think uh, once again, Anne Enright was one of the people who we championed that book, which is how I, I discovered it. She mentioned it. I didn't know Leah at the time. Uh, I do now. She's got a story in the, in the long days back. Um, but it is her own experience um, of... Uh, not the same kind, but of a facial cancer. And again, jaw reconstruction, a lot of pain, the fear that in, 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 that comes as part and parcel of navigating hospitals and the medical world and sort of like trying to find your own language and negotiate with doctors. Um, and what Leah manages to do in a book about a very dark subject, and which is one of the reasons I like it, is that it is very... Uh, comic. It's often quite comic and conversational. It's very immersive um, and it is dealing with that. Illness can be a very difficult subject to write about without um, alienating a lot of people who haven't. So what you have to do when you write about illness, I think, is try and make it universal um, or try and get people to imagine in an empathetic sort of place that this might happen to them or somebody that they know. And I think Leah does that really brilliantly in that work. In terms of the essay, yeah, I did go back and I I confess I haven't done that much much research on this, but there are definitely a a handful, uh, I have them somewhere in a note on that notebook, on that laptop, um, about four or five quite prominent um, female essays. I mean, people, like we're talking before Hubert Butler here, Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the last decade or so, and I, I do think this is something to do with how much the seismic political and cultural shifts we've had in Ireland in the last 10 years that this has been a country traditionally where, you know, women had very specific roles and were often like, you know, it's kind of almost quite infantilizing, you know, be, be seen and not heard and don't talk back and don't have opinions and all those mm-hmm. things. And not, that's obviously all those sort of old, horrible totems have all been sort of washed away in a lot of ways. So I think some of that, that sort of the voices of women, uh, they definitely rose up in fiction and maybe it's just finally coming around to the, to the essay form, which it does require you to be a little bit closer to the coalface by its very nature because it's, mm-hmm. it's non-fiction, it's not a novel. Why do you think the the essay is having such a moment in, in Irish writing now? Like I'm thinking obviously mm. the huge success last year of Emily, Emily Pine's Pine, Notes yeah, to Self, yeah. which was the Irish book of the year. Um, this year alone, we've got um, Tunnel Vision by Kevin Brannock. We've got Ian Malini's Minor Monuments, your own book, and then Rosita's my colleague book Rosita Boland's yeah, Elsewhere coming out in May. Um, there's obviously something um, going on in the water. Is there the idea that you know a lot of silences have been broken, say, in civic society with kind of challenges to the accepted narrative? Um, and is that maybe feeding into um, 
what writers are, are seeking to do or to achieve? Yeah, I think so, because I think 10 years ago, possibly books like this would have just been, when you think, if you think back to even longer, to Neil O'Whalon's Are You Somebody, if people in Ireland wanted to tell a sort of personal story, it was the traditional, very safe and well-known format of, of the memoir. And there's nothing wrong with the memoir. Um, it just wasn't something that I wanted to do. And if you look at Kevin's book and Ian's book as well, they are collections of essays, but they're not straightforward collections of essays at all. I don't think mine is the same. Uh, Emily's is the same. It's very fragmented. It's not a whole mm-hmm. life uh, because none of us are none of us are at the end of our lives. We're all sort of... Sure. It's a, the, the, the other possibility with a book of essays is that because it's not a memoir, it's not finished. There are more stories and more essays to be told and be written. I think the four of us and, and possibly Rosita as well would relate to that. Um, I do think it is to do with the, the, the speaking up and speaking louder and, and getting to a place where you can say anything you want to. It's funny, I remember reading an article in the, I think it was the New Yorker a couple of years ago and it was after Leslie Jemison's The Empathy Exams had come out, which was a big book for me, an essay collection. And there was it was there was two a week apart. I was like, the, the personal essay is dead and that's the end of it and it's gone. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Leslie Jemison and Roxanne Gay's first book had come out and it said like, you know, we're in a golden age of the essay, especially for female voices. Um, I think, I mean, novels can tell us all sorts of stories and novels are often about places we don't know and people we don't know and escapism. But I find, and I did an event the other night for the for the book uh, in the pavilion and in the queue afterwards lots of people wanted to tell me their stories and I feel that this, there is this not just permission for people who want to write and lots of them are readers and don't ever want to write a book mm-hmm. but when they hear somebody else tell these stories it reminds them of what are the, you know the, the the big moments in their lives the things that have had an impact for good or for bad and and you know I, I kind of it's one of the things I like I, I like hearing from people I like hearing what they and it's often not things I expect people to say when they focus mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. on the things they tell me that they like about it but I, th- I think also now their publishers are probably like now going to be scouring around for the, the next uh, essayist and I think we're going to see I think there's going to be a, a rash of books now mm-hmm, in the next mm-hmm. couple of years and I look forward to reading them I imagine so too like just one uh, title um, popped into my head when I was Listening to you speak there about the um, the other artists and whatever that you are writing about, and that's P.J. Kavanagh's Finding Connections, which is a book of essays that he wrote about you know tracing his own Irish ancestry, but it was also about establishing links with you know with with other people, other writers, and I, I just wondered. Um, was that something that you very consciously did or did it just sort of naturally kind of evolve that in telling your own story, you also um, were finding in the the artwork of, of other creative people um, echoes of your own story? You mean in the book itself? In the book. Yeah, for, for sure. And I, and I think that when... I started to write the book because there was originally 20 essays in the book and I kind of pared back and also some had been published before so I didn't necessarily feel I had to publish them again. Um, I wasn't interested in the whole book being about me and one of the books, one of the best books I've ever read about writing nonfiction and who's a brilliant also essayist and writer herself is a woman called Vivian Gornick who has a book called The Situation and the Story, The Art of Personal Narrative. It's very short. I own one copy and the whole book is basically underlined and I use it for teaching a lot. And Vivian Gornick has a great line and she says that the, the, the memoirist tells all and the essayist selects. And I think that's the difference between both of those sort of formats. But in terms of me... Um, Carl has always been somebody who was really big for me and it felt like if I was going to write about the body how, and I'm interested in art, how could I not write about Carla? It, it felt sort of remiss and strange to, to leave her out. Um, the first essay I ever published was an essay called Hair in the journal Banshee and again, it, to me, I would have I would have bored myself to death writing an essay about my own experience with the hair. And the thing is, they are all connected to, you know, medicine, this, this chemotherapy and, you know, having a daughter and, you know, multiple head shavings and getting in trouble in school and pink hair and blue hair. But 
it, it wouldn't have felt, I wouldn't have been interested. I know all those stories. So in order for myself and writers are, are by their nature are meant to be curious. So in order to tell different stories. So in that story, I, I talked about pre-Raphaelites and I talked about Leitondue and women having their head shaved in, you know, various world wars. Um, I talked about shuttles and Jewish culture. I, I talked about all sorts of things I'm interested in. So mm-hmm, the book mm-hmm. for me was a way of talking and finding out about subjects that I'm interested in while maybe using myself as something, um, uh, as a, a fulcrum at times. It is a remarkable thing that illness is such a prompt for writers. Like I'm thinking even talking to Sarah Davis Goff recently at Mountains to Sea. She was um, ill as a child, missed yeah. a lot of school, was homeschooled. And that was, you know, led her to becoming an avid reader. Robert Louis Stevenson, obviously. Danielle McLaughlin, I think later in life, um, became ill. Um, is it just simply a question of confinement or is it is it beyond that or is it a kind of a more of a questioning of you know maybe mortality I think you mentioned in your interview with Patrick Freen in the Irish Times recently is it something along those lines as well yeah I think it's I think it's actually a combination of, of both and there's there's so many stories and I remember Viv Albertine the the right the, who's from the slits it was a memoir as well a lot about illness and I remember her asking me when she was writing it who are the writers who are bedbound and who are ill and we were having a big chat and she was talking about you know Monica Ali and trying to find different writers and writers of color and Gary Steingart writes all his books in bed because he's got a bad back there's the famous story of, of Bram Stoker who had a kind of mysterious ailment for two years and was bedbound as a child and a lot of people think that this is where his imagination roamed those the mm-hmm. you know the top floor of that spooky house in Clontarf where he grew up and potentially this is where Dracula um, and all the theories about you know Dracula you know Dracula yeah, bad yeah, blood yeah. For, in Irish there's all this kind of stuff um, so I kind of think in my case I spent and I'm, I'm really glad I got ill in the area of pre-internet when I was a child because I probably wouldn't have read so many books and I, I say constantly that a lot of my my career choices and life and, and reading and formative years was all was book related because it was not being able to move, being in bed, uh, being confined to a room. And again, if you are confined and you're looking around four walls, well, what are you going to do? Your mind's going to wander. Mm-hmm. So it is, as they say in, in that piece I read there, it's it's um, immobility is gasoline of the imagination. So you're, 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 you're bored. There's a lot of bored, boredom and you're also trying to physically escape your situation and your own body. And in, in my case, I think it was a combination of, of all of those things. But also, I mean, Everybody, the one thing we all have in common is we all have a body and most, to lesser or greater extent, some of us don't think about that body and don't actually, and hopefully will be um, uh, unencumbered with any major health issues most of our life and you don't think about it until something does go wrong with it. So I think, yeah, it's, it's the most ever-present thing that we all have in common. So it's makes it's, it's um, lots of things went wrong with mine, which is why I was interested in, you know, why it's funny, like I have a brother who was born with a click in his hip and yet I was the one who got the hip problem. So those kind of weird little, why that person and the, the piece that was in The Guardian about Rob, you know, why does somebody get to live a long life and why does somebody not? So I'm interested in kind of fate and bad luck and good luck and, you know, predestination. All those things are quite fascinating. Can I ask you about anthologies then? Mm. Um, you've established your reputation with with two excellent anthologies of Irish women writers, The Long Gaze Back, yeah. Irish women writers generally, and The Glass Shore, writers from the north of Ireland. And I know that you're working on a even bigger project now, which is for Head of Zeus, a hundred yes. Irish short stories. Yes, I'm not sure yeah. what the working title is. It's called um, it's called the the Art of the Glimpse, which I stole from William Trevor, who was writing an introduction uh, to a collection by Margaret Barrington, who is brilliant, unknown, has a wonderful story in the glass shore, was married to Liam O'Flaherty. Um, and he described Barrington's work as a, she's brilliant at the art of the glimpse. So I was like, I think I might um, yep. homagely borrow that because mm-hmm. um, that, that's what I think the story, a short story is like walking into a room for a moment and then ducking back out. You just get a, 
a second to look at something. And what is the overarching theme there? Is it just the best or, or again, is it a kind of a salvage of kind of surprising people? I'm, I've been kind of told I can literally do what I want. So I think it's got it's going to be a mix of sort of, you know, maybe best classic, interesting, lost um, for me. And I was also told I don't have to commission anything. So it's things that exist. But at the same time, um, Ireland's changing and I want the book to reflect that and be possibly a little bit more multicultural. So I'm making more of an effort to find uh, maybe some newer writers uh, because, it, 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 you know, canon, is, as I've said many, many times, can be a difficult and problematic thing. And just because 100 Irish stories exist doesn't mean that's going to be representative of contemporary Ireland now. So I'm, I'm giving myself a little bit of wiggle room at the end for some of the newer stories. But yeah, it's great. So I'll, it'll be, it's already just, the problem is deciding, it's like, you know, which story do you pick from Dubliners? There has to be a story from Dubliners in there, but they're also Arabic, possibly. Um, and I always have this resistance to not picking the most anthologized of someone's work, you know, which I cheated with The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bone and The Long Goes Back. So, yeah, it's 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 a lot of um, it's a lot of digging and, and work. But because you've got 100, it does take the pressure off for sure. There's a lot more you can put in. So but I just I love the short story and I love anthologies. And this series that has of Zeus do, there's been a crime one, there's been Frank Wynne's work in translation. And the idea of sitting down with 100 stories is just joy to me. That's like my dream reading day. Is there one story in particular that thrilled you when you came a- came across it that you hadn't known of before or for at, whatever other reason? At the moment, uh, oh, I, I, I funny, I've just read a load of um, Beckett stories, which are just, I, I only kind of, you know, I'd read Watt and all the sort of big stuff. And some of them are just completely almost nonsensical but of course they're not nonsensical they're they're brilliant and elliptical and strange uh, so I just went on a bit, bit, bit of a, a Beckett buzz and again it's just deciding mercifully as well some of them are only four pages you're like great that means I can probably shove another story by somebody else in rather than uh, I, I remember with the, the Long Gaze Back Iris Murdoch wrote one short story and I was determined to find it and I was like that's going to be in the book and I found it and it's 70 pages long so the problem is again length with a book of 100 pages 100 stories is trying to fit in the kind of work um I keep talking about Nora Holt and the story that I always talk about with Nora Holt is the Nine Years is a Long Time, which is basically a story about sex work written in Ireland in the 1940s, which would have been very transgressive. And I'm definitely including that because lots of people still haven't read it. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's not in cocktail bar. So I'm going to include that. Great. Yeah, it's brilliant. And finally, can I ask you, obviously, uh, you have a great reputation as um, as a journalist. You did the book show on RT for several years and print journalist as well. Um, what's it like being on the other side of the microphone? Really strange, really, really weird. And uh, it's... I don't, it's very, the whole thing is the last few days have been quite overwhelming. There's been such a huge response to many things and people have been wonderful. And you have that whole, you know, that um, Eric Morecambe line, he used to expect the phone to call, call to ring and someone to go, right, that's it. We want it all back now. You've had your lot. Um, and people have been really, really generous and kind about the book. Uh, I love to hear what kind of questions people are going to ask. I did an event with Maeve Higgins the other night and she was joking with me beforehand, which is something I often say about women are off. Oh, how do you juggle it all? She said, I'm going to ask you that on stage. And I was like, no, you're not. And of course she did, which and got a big laugh because everybody knows that's something I say frequently. So, yeah, she made it quite, quite fun. And everybody's going to ask different questions. And I, one thing I do love about this is even with the reviews, people focus on how they have different things that they like and the things I expect people to like won't necessarily be that. So that's you're always surprised by readers and I hope I will be for the next few months. Great. Okay, Sinead, listen, thank you very much for coming in. I know you've got a packed schedule with 29 <laughs> speaking engagements or interviews. I'm, which I'm is buying a robot of myself on the internet. <laughs> thank you, Martin. Lovely, thank you. Constellations by Sinead Gleeson 
is published by Picador. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa, choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. Since it was set up in 2014, Tramp Press has achieved phenomenal success, despite or perhaps because it has published so few titles, just two or three a year. It has published two of the past three winners of the Irish Book of the Year Award, Notes to Self by Emily Pine last year and Solar Bones by Mike McCormick in 2016, which went on to win the International Dublin Literary Award and be longlisted for the Man Booker. It has also given a debut to talent such as Sarah Bohm, published for the first time on this side of the Atlantic, US authors Jade Sharma and Sarah Henstra, and reissued books by neglected authors such as Dorothy McArdle and Maeve Kelly. My colleague Laura Slattery recently met Tram Press co-founder Sarah Davis-Goff. Welcome Sarah. Thanks for having me. As we speak, your debut novel has been on the shelves for about a month now. What has the whole experience of publishing been like for you as a writer? And was it what you expected having been through the process as a publisher? Mm, I've been really curious to experience having a book out myself, particularly a debut. Um, I would describe it, I guess, as having a sort of constant but low-level anxiety. I feel I'm every moment almost I have to check myself and think, gosh, you know, isn't there something I can be doing to sell this at the moment? And the answer is always no. But the fact that I have to ask this question and answer it for myself a dozen times a day is kind of tiring. I would say that it's not... A, it's not dissimilar to um, publishing a book. Um, I mean, publishing someone else's work with my company. We were much more nervous. I was certainly much more nervous when we were launching our first book, um, Flight by Una Frawley, back in 2014 under the Trump umbrella than I was launching my own work. There's at once more at stake in launching someone else's work. But at the same time, you have similar levels of control, which is very little ultimately. So for some years, of course, uh, five years, you've been publishing through Tramp Press. And of course, you've been working in the industry for longer than that. But at the same time, in your spare time, you were writing. Uh, So tell me what that was like. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fun. Um, I don't know why I do it. (laughs) Like no one's doing it for the money. It's kind of exhausting. It's really hard a lot of the time. Um, I'm trying to write book two at the moment and I'm trying to like remember not just how to write and how to create a good story, but also why. (laughs) And also, I mean, how in a very um, technical, mechanical level, like where did I used to fit this in my day? Um, So at the moment, I'm trying to like get up early, write a couple of hours before I go to work. Um, I'm not good at getting up early. And so I'm finding that really difficult. But um, like most writers, I have a day job and this is very normal. So I'm just, it's been hard to get back into it. At the same time, I'm just really enjoying this world that I've created and sliding back into that world and creating a new story in it is actually really exciting and kind of thrilling. So yes, we'll talk about book two just a little bit later on again in some detail, hopefully. But I'd like to just sort of go go back to when you sort of first decided, I will get this published. Um, you wanted to go through the process almost, you know, as if you weren't working in publishing. For sure, for sure. Um, I, I, I mean... I think it's good to have a bit of a wall between um, my day job and my hobby, essentially. Um, I didn't want to be published through any publisher I had particular experience of, if I could help it. Um, I wanted just a whole fresh 
fresh group of people to work with in an ideal world. Um, and very luckily, I sort of got that. You know, I hadn't been familiar with um, the work of Tinder Press um, really before I met them and their brilliant editor, Marianne. Um, they publish also uh, Maggie O'Farrell um, and a few other writers that I'm more familiar with now, like Patrick Gale. Um, but it was great just to have fresh eyes on everything and to have to create a whole new professional relationship. Um, that was very sort of invigorating. Um, there's a potential conflict of interest, of course, if I go looking to, say, a tramp writer for a nice quote for my book. So I really <laughs> didn't want to be doing that. Um, but at the same time, it's silly to say that you're going to work in publishing and you're not going to know, at least, you know quite a lot of the people that you meet. Um, so I'm just really grateful that people have been so generous and kind to me. And your co-founder at Tramp is Lisa Cohen, who's right. a good friend of yours. And mm. what did she say when you told her that you're doing this? Lisa's been nothing but incredibly supportive since the beginning. Um, she was one of the first people to read... Um, the book and one of the first people to edit it and it would not I, I'm not sure it would ever have been published and would ever have got anywhere except for her steely eyes on it so I just feel incredibly grateful to her and you know of course you've published some so many you know acclaimed brilliant books but are you one of those people who loves reading but at the same time even as you were reading there was a part of you that wanted to be typing out your own words? I suppose so. I'm not sure when that started, but it was a long time ago. I think anyone who grows up reading a lot of books eventually just wants to have a go on, by, of their own and to, to, to try and create something of their own. Um, and so I've, <clears throat> although Last One's Left Alive is my debut novel, I've been working away at writing projects for a really long time. Um, it takes a long time to get good. Um, I had a really terrible vampire novel that I tried to get published, oh, about a decade ago, I'd say. And I learned a lot from that. Um, yeah, writing takes a long time. Getting good takes a long time. So it's it's been an ongoing project. So I was fascinated by your pinned tweet, uh, which is where you say you haven't cried in a long time, but you did cry when you finally saw the book in, in, in the bookshop. Right, it's true. Um, I'm I My pinned tweet... Um, has a photo of the Hodges Figgis um, window display, which is still up, I think, amazingly. Um, and it's um, this guy called Stephen, who works in Hodges Figgis, created it. Um, and it involves, <laughs> the whole window is taken up with a wheelbarrow, um, and some mannequins, a whole load of foliage. It's very dystopian. It's incredibly creative. Some of the um, signage that I mention in the novel has sort of magically appeared in this window. And I find that like incredibly moving. I'm not a person who like goes around having a lot of feelings, but this, yeah, that definitely got me where it hurts. I guess because it's been so much work and so much so, yeah. so much personal uh, um, effort and Absolutely. <laughs> emotion. And just, exactly. And just all oh, the kindness of someone doing that for you, you know, um, like Stephen is kind of is an artist in his own right and Hodges Figgis um, getting behind the book in that way is so, like so many other booksellers too is just genuinely touching and moving. Yeah. Now let's talk a bit more um, about Last One's Left Alive. It's a zombie novel. And of course, we know from you know all the different interpretations that we've had of, of zombies and, and zombie-like creatures oh, yeah. over the years. And they do tend to stand for different fears depending on who their creator is. So... What do your creatures, or they're called the Scrake, uh, and what does the world they live in mean to you? Um, yeah, I've, I mean, I really enjoy zombie literature. Um, and there's a few of them out there. Like I would rec um, I would suggest rather that Cormac McCarthy's The Road um, is a zombie book, essentially. You know, it's about um, these ravenous 
um, soulless creatures, you know, looking for your blood, essentially. Um, Colson Whitehead, who wrote The Underground Railroad, um, also wrote a book called Zone One, which is just like a great, almost schlocky zombie narrative that I really love. And I think in that he's talking about consumerism. Um, there's a little-known book called uh, Game of Thrones, which is also <laughs> talking about zombies. Um, and I'm curious to see how that plays out and what these White Walkers are are standing in for. Like, what is the fear that uh, George R. R. Martin is trying to describe there? For me, I'm talking about addiction, essentially. Um, my zombies are, they're fast-moving, they're very violent. Um, they, um, like most zombies, are absolutely ravenous and out for your throat, essentially. Um, but the turning time it takes for someone um, who has been bitten um, to turn into a zombie or a skrake, um, it takes, uh, you know, a good few days. And in that time, you know, the the poor person who has been bitten, you see their personality kind of being eroded and you see them being overcome by something which they can't really control even when they're trying to. Um, there's a, manip- a manipulative aspect to these um, creatures that I find really terrifying. Um, so that's what I'm talking about. So you've said that you want to create the kind of Irish feminist post-apocalyptic novel <laughs> that you would have, you know, liked to see submitted to Tramp Press at some point in the past. But yeah, you've, you've done it yourself. Um, <laughs> what does what what does Last Ones Left Alive? I suppose how does that sort of relate, or how is it inspired by events in Ireland and the situation in Ireland over the last few decades? Um, Well, I think it's really clear that women are second-class citizens in Irish society. Um, I just had a tweet. um, I tweeted something yesterday being annoyed about this recent case of a taxi driver who's been convicted of um, having assaulted, sexually assaulted three women being given his license back and just being told, oh, well, you know, don't don't let women sit in the front seat, Um, which is just stunning to me. And this is on top of, you know, the health scandals. This is on top of the Magdalene Laundry scandals. Um, it's one thing after another. Like women are in trouble constantly in this society, and what I wanted to do was create a world in which, yes, women are in trouble in similar ways. But at least in in reading this book, in opening the front pages, I can put everyone on the same page with regard to this. You know, there are so many men and women in Ireland who would be like, no, things are perfectly equal. In fact, things have gone the other way now. Women are too powerful, um, which makes me laugh a lot. Um, so it's a really difficult problem to fix if we can't all agree on the problem. But in creating a world and creating a book, you're literally putting everyone in the same mindset. You're saying, look, here is the world. And I'm curious to see, now that I've presented some of this world, is it fixable? If we can all agree on the same problem, is there a way out of this kind of inequality? So the child narrator in the book, Orpen, doesn't see the world in quite the same way as the Banshee characters. I mean, she hasn't lived long enough maybe to understand their perspective. Right. So that's a very important, I guess, conflict in the book. Is that something that you will continue uh, to explore? I guess so. Um, yeah, so Orpen is just this um, 14-year-old kid, um, and she isn't even a creation so much just as a product of her times. She... Um, is brought up in real seclusion um, in rural Ireland off the coast of the west of the west of Ireland and uh, she doesn't really know anyone she's been incredibly sheltered by her um, parents effectively by her guardians um, and um, she's very naive and she's very angry she knows that you know it's a dangerous world out there but like a lot of you know kids who have been brought up in rural Ireland, they want to go out and see the danger anyway because, you know, you have this compulsion to see something of the world, even if it isn't always a, a pretty world to be looking at. Um, 
So the book is about her sort of traveling from from the West Coast to the East Coast um, and searching for a future for herself, essentially, um, even as the country is kind of ruined around her. And even as she knows that uh, she's making a very dangerous trip, she she might die. Um, uh, she, even knowing all that, she still wants to take this journey and she still wants to see something of the world rather than just, you know, live a very um, secluded existence off Ireland, never seeing anyone or anything. And book two, which you mentioned earlier, um, as I understand it, it is a sequel or it's sort of. World. I mean, Last One's Left Alive, um, I'm told by my publishers, is literary fiction and literary <laughs> fiction doesn't really have sequels per se. <laughs> Although I think Lisa McInerney might have something to say about that. Um, so, But it is a sort of follow on. Um, every time I look at the book, it changes. So like, perhaps luckily I can't tell you too much about it because I'm still very much figuring it out. Um, but um, I was going to ask you, actually, are you an outliner in advance or someone who, 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 who for whom it's very fluid? I can things wish can change? I, <laughs> well, it's not fluid, I'm afraid. And I wish I could outline in advance and then follow an actual plan. I think that would be really sensible. Um, <laughs> but it's not really how things work for me. I kind of have to feel my way along and see what feels right and feels real to the characters. Um, it takes ages. <laughs> So for anyone who doesn't know, you know, tell me about why you set up Tramp Press. Sure. Um, so um, we set up Tramp, I guess, for three basic reasons. Um, the first two are about what the publishing industry was doing and what we thought we could do differently. Um, we think publishers, as a rule, tend to publish too much. Um, and that's unfair on all the writers that they're publishing because they aren't given enough attention. Um, it can be an issue in terms of quality um, because, I mean, there just aren't that many books out there that are exceptionally good. And we argue that it doesn't necessarily do a writer any favours to be published too early or to have a work of lesser quality be put out there in front of readers. Um, it's not great for readers to be totally inundated, um, which we kind of are with all the publishing that's going on. Um, so we were wondering if we could publish a very, very select list of just three titles a year. Um, and in doing so, have incredible author care, um, have like very robust um, PR programs. Um, we're supported by the Arts Council, which... And just, how important is that? I wanted oh, to ask yeah. you about that because, it, it, you know, there's, everyone will always say that there's definitely a need for more Arts Council funding mm -hmm. in this country. But you're, you're a great example, I think, of, of you know, what can, a company can do Thank when you. you have that support. Yeah, they've supported us from the beginning um, and we're incredibly grateful for that. We literally would never have got off the ground um, without the Arts Council and we wouldn't be able to... Um, to continue to do what we do without their help and without their support. Um, like... I think the Arts Council essentially still isn't given enough money by the government. I mean, when it comes to um, arts spending as a reflection of GD, of gross domestic products, rather, um, we're still at the very lowest in the European tables. Um, and that's a bit of a, a shock considering our the quality of our art. Um, the amazing stuff that we put out, not just in literature, but in in, in films um, and in um, theatre and in you know music and art. Um, and dance. Um, so the government really needs, to, it's, the government has promised to give more funding. We're starting to see that come through and it's just, it's way past time. I think there's an argument to be made that really that funding should be given to the health services. Um, and I absolutely see what people are saying, but at, in the arts, it's not a zero sum game. Um, the more money that is um, invested in us, the more money we can attract to the to um, to the country as a whole. I mean, in selling rights um, and in um, exporting incredible literature, um, 
which so much of our tourism and our cultural, you know, um, reputation internationally depends on, um, you know, that's incredibly important. Um, we're attracting sort of hundreds of thousands of euros in foreign direct investments through the sales that we've been making. Um, so, and that just goes back into the economy. So th- that's our argument for supporting the arts. Well, it was at your former employer, but you are well known in publishing circles for uh, finding Donald Ryan's <laughs> first book uh-huh. in the slush pile. So uh, my question is, what what's your slush pile technique now at Tramp Press? Um, it's very simple. It's read until you're sure. Either... Um, your heart is like beating at like, you know, twice its normal rate and your hair is on fire <laughs> about a manuscript or not. Um, so we handle unsolicited manuscripts that get sent into us very quickly and we turn them around quite quickly. We publish very little out of our slush pile, which by the name is, by the way, is a horrible name for just like a really <laughs> lovely thing. We love slush. Um we say no to like over 99% of people who send in their manuscripts. And that's true for a lot of publishing companies. But at least we can say no quickly so that you can go on and, you know, try and find another publisher. And I think that's important. So what's your ambitions for the company now? We want to be the best publisher in the world. Um, we're working on it. Um, I would say we can make an argument for being, um, you know, one of the leading publishers in Ireland. And we've only been in business for five years, so that's pretty good going. Um, we are, as far as I know, the first independent Irish publisher to establish a UK office. Um, so that happened at the beginning of this year. Um, our UK sales and international sales are increasing year on year. Um, and not just in terms of sales, but just in terms of the, the, the world class quality of literature that we publish. We're very ambitious. Well, I really recommend to listeners that they check out all of uh, Tramp Press's list, as well as Sarah's novel, Last Ones Are Left Alive. And I really look forward to reading your next book. But for now, thank you very much, Sarah Davis-Goff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Irish Times Books podcast. Happy reading.